Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Odd Numbers podcast. My name's Jack Six, and I will be learning about the music industry by chatting to some of the most impressive people within it. From managers, artists and A&Rs to lawyers, accountants and execs. This time my guest is Joel Corty. He's just finished up eight years at Columbia Records and he's taken on his next role as Director of Marketing at Warner Records. He's worked on some crazy campaigns from coffee, Davido, Wizkid to George Ezra, Mark Ronson and others. And in this conversation, he shares lots of tips and learnings from his career so far, including talking about imposter syndrome, the evolution of his role, what sort of questions to ask before making a career move, how to establish whether you're right for the culture or the culture's right for you, and also a fair amount of music, which you can check out on our Spotify page. I'll get you to introduce yourself. So you've obviously just moved roles, but if you could give me like just a brief rundown of, of who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Joel Corty. I am now director of marketing at Warner Records, but uh, previously, as recently as three weeks ago, I was still the <laughs> head of marketing at Columbia Records. Um, and I'd been at Columbia for just over eight years. Um, yeah. I've caught you at an interesting time then. Yes, um, lots of change going on in my life. Yeah, quite a bit. Sorry, I'm, I feel like I've, I've sabotaged you really. or well, not sabotaged you, but I've accosted you at a, a pivotal moment. But I guess it's kind of good because you can talk about your new role and the, the last eight years. Yeah, it's probably a good time because it's like a looking forward into the new role, but also reflecting on everything that happened in the previous eight years. We'll start even further back what what sort of stuff were you listening to when you were a kid like what was your like earliest memories of music in terms of like what i would have grown up listening to before i could even like buy my own music my mum's like the biggest diana ross fan supremes jackson five gabrielle mm-hmm. um and but then on the polar opposite side my dad was like into bands like led zeppelin and um and pearl jam so it was like polar opposites of music but um, for me, just to think growing up, uh, it's really weird. I've always been such a fan of like instrumentals. And then like I lived like in uni, I lived with um, a producer and DJ who's doing fantastic called Shy One. And I had an I- like the old school iPod. And she basically danced, she gave me every bit of music she had on her laptop. <laughs> And that's worth a lot of money, isn't it? <laughs> well, I know I st- I've never ever updated. It was also because it was on PC, and remember with the old laptops, laptops you can you couldn't mix, you couldn't update between PC and um, and MacBook. So I've never updated it, and it had it just had such a wealth of like music on there. Um, but yeah, in terms of like my favorite, I wouldn't say grew up on, but if I think about like albums that have really like affected me, is like um, Fuji's Jamie Woon. I'm probably Jamie Moon's biggest fan. Mirror Writing being like one of my top albums of all time. How old were you at this sort of point? Oh, when did Jamie Moon come out? Maybe was I like... Take it to 17? Okay, fine. Um, I like, don't hold me to that. I'd have to check the dates. But yeah, I remember, you know, music becoming the like a really important part of my life. Um, as I was like moving from college to um, to university, like I did a I did a, a media course and I didn't really like media, but we did one advertising and marketing course, which then made me think I really want to do advertising and marketing for music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to um, to college with Jamal Edwards, rest fun. in peace. Yeah, we were you know we were really good friends, like friends from the age of seventeen. And I think his like drive and motivation and also just like he opened that window to like, there's a whole world out there where you can create a, a business and a living from working in music. Um, and, you know, I, I drove to a, a lot of the, the SBTV um, recordings and 
yeah, I think that just kind of gave me that like fire in my belly, like to like go out and have that entrepreneur spirit, um, to like to try and do something myself. I feel like I've gone on a major tangent from no, not at all. Where so where did you grow up? Was that West? Yeah, so I'm from West. Even okay. so, I live in North now, but I'm from I'm from West London, like the between Ealing Common and Acton. So yeah, um, that's yeah. We were all within the same the same friendship group. And then when you went to university, where did you where did you go? I went to university in Hertfordshire, which okay. ended up not, not like, too far. Then. Yeah, not too far. I was going to go to Birmingham, and then I chickened out. And then I regretted it, and I went to Hertfordshire, um, and like didn't love the like the uni experience. But what was great is that that university seems to be a hub for so many people in music, especially within like the black music space and Afrobeat. So there's so many times that I've had meetings, um, and it's been like a friend or an old uni mate that's come in and they're managing an artist or they're running a, a label, and like there's so many people that are doing great things um, like from that university. Well, that almost leads us straight on to, to the network side of things. So did you, how did you capitalise on the fact that you knew those people when you first were trying to break in? Was there like, you know, let's talk through your yeah. your earliest steps into the industry after you were, were at uni. I think, yeah, I think Jamal's probably like quite annoyed with me because I would always be asking. But the, diff- the, the difference was I never wanted to get into the kind of video side of stuff. That wasn't where my interest lied. It was all within the marketing space. And I kind of, I think I was quite lucky because I decided quite early that I wanted to do that essentially wanted to be a marketing manager at a label so I was able to try and start that process quite early and like the way in which I got my first um like into that so I did I did an internship at Polydor for two weeks um in the A&R department um and then after that was actually in in high school okay wow okay fine Yes, that was in high school. So you were like, so you really were switched on quite, quite young. Yeah. So I'm even thinking, no. So even before that, I was probably yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted to like work in a label. So I, and but I could only get a week, sorry, at Polydor, and I did a week at Fitness First. So it was really like a juxtaposition. <laughs> so like work experience. Yeah, so it's my work experience. So I, yeah, so they were like, oh, we can only do a week at Polydor. So I did a week at Fitness First. Um, my friend, sorry, my sister had a friend who was an A and R. And she just hit him up because she was like, oh, what do you want to do? And I was like, I need to work at this placement. And he was like, yeah, cool. You can come in for a week. And then I saw like the inner workings of a label and I was like, I really want to do this. And then my second then week was at Fitness First. Week. <laughs> then I went and worked at Fitness First for a week, which is like the complete opposite. I ended up working at Fitness First after that for like quite a few years, but always in the back of my head, like I was trying to reach out. But, you know, as many people probably sympathize, it was really not that easy, like contacting HR, hearing nothing back, contacting the people that I'd been working with and, um, and them, you know, saying, oh, it's a HR thing. Like, we don't really do like a... There, like, back then, there wasn't really a formalised process for getting into music, which I think is a little bit of a blessing and a curse because all of my first internships were unpaid. I remember one of them, I was asking, like, oh, do you think you could pay for my food? Like, as well as my travel? And they were like, no, mm. it's just travel. Um, and, you know, if you're not in a position to be able to, like, self-fund and, like, I was living at home and, um, and I live in London... But if you don't have those like those luxuries, I don't know how you'd have been able to like do those things like back in the day. Now it's very formalized. You get paid. There's a whole process. All of the labels run like an internship program. But there's like six to ten thousand applicants, and mm-hmm. they choose like twenty two people each year. So I'm like I'm trying to figure out in my head: is it harder now, or was it harder then? Because then like you could just come in and like do do some stuff for free. But now you have to be like on the books, yeah. on the, on the payroll. Um, which you know maybe makes it a little bit more difficult and the longer term opportunities right so it's, it's yeah so they're like a full, it's like a full year and it's four you can't take a take a month out of whatever other job you're doing to yeah to yeah um, so yeah after Polydor yeah went back yeah that's yeah after that that was at the end of high school went to college um, and then while I was at college I was like I really want to like bolster my CV um, with work experience so. I managed to get, um, there was a management company called Octagon and um, there was someone working at my mum's work and his uh, wife worked at this management company and we were talking and he was like, oh, what do you want to do? And I was like, I really want to get experience in music. So he put me in touch and I did did an internship there for three months. Um, And then my internship at Warner Records, which is like come full circle because that's where I actually had my first proper internship came through somebody that I'd met at like a, there was a panel 
that Jamal was doing and I was just I, like I'd driven there with him and I was sitting in the audience and um, there was a girl that um, I started talking to um, she actually now works at um, uh, Virgin I believe and we just kept in contact and like she was very aware that I was looking for a work placement and one day she was like oh I know someone at Warner Records that's like they're looking for an intern sent the CV didn't hear anything back as usual and then there was a club night called Yo-Yo's at Notting Hill Arts Club way back when and I went and I then bumped into both the, the person that she'd sent my CV to and her and he was like oh I completely forgot I'm so glad like I've seen you now I can put the CV to the face and the next day I got a call from Warner day after that I did the interview and then day after that started the job and at the time I was working in Carphone Warehouse and I remember being like I remember always talking about, I was like, I'm going to work in music and the manager was like, oh, whatever, like yeah. just go and sell yeah, a phone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then um, when I got the call in the, in, on the top floor, like, I remember just being so happy. And I was like, oh, I, like, I've got a job at a record label. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, yeah, I need to start on Monday. And this was like Thursday. And she was like, well, you have to work your notice. And I was like, I just can't. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm going and then, that's yeah. It. Went that's to the thing. It's like it can be so exciting that you just you've got to take those little risks like that. I guess hundred percent, and it's like putting into like perspective. Like Carving Warehouse isn't on my CV, yeah. And this was like the the opportunity that I've been waiting for. Um, but this was this was all in a, in. Um, I did a four year course where the one year of it was a gap year to do like work experience, um, and so I've actually missed the point. I actually did a month at Excel, which I got from. Tweet. I, I used to do a lot of outreach. I'd like tweet rich. I'd like tweet like label bosses or people that worked in recruitment. I remember having like like tweeting like the Sony Music US people, and they actually called me and they were like, "We're just like we really like we're really like intrigued by like the like you know what the, what you've put in your emails and like we can't obviously hire somebody this junior from the UK, but we just thought we'd reach out and like we'll put in a word with the UK office at Sony." Um, what were but, you tweeting? Do you remember the sort of? Well, I tweeted Richard. I tweeted Richard. That's like quite a public thing to do, right? Yeah, but do you know what? Twitter was a very different place back. Like it, it felt like you were talking to people. Like it didn't feel like a broadcast as okay. much as it did now. Like this is like two thousand and nine. So I yeah I tweeted Richard Russell when I was like, hey, like really would love to do an internship with Excel. Like how can I do this? And he just like um, gave me an email address. He just tweeted me back with an email address for somebody. And I had to fill out this like questionnaire. Um, and then, yeah, I did, I did a month there. But then my university were like, that isn't long enough to like qualify. And I was there like, like anything under um, six months doesn't count. So I was like, okay, I'm back at square one. And then that, that Warner opportunity came about. So did the, yeah, did the Warner internship. And then they actually offered me a job, but I'd done three years of uni and I just needed to finish the fourth. So. I was like, I would love to, but I've spent too much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also just want to get the degree. I can't, like, I don't want to drop out now. So I went back um, to uni and then after that, tried to go back to Warner's and it was when they'd done the, the merger um, and they were, they were making redundancy. So they were like, we're really sorry, but there's no opportunity here. So there was me in Carphone Warehouse applying for every every job I could find. I was like, as long as I can get into the, get into the building, there was international, there was catalogue, like lots of stuff that wasn't really where my interest lied. But I always thought if I got in the building, I'd be able to find my way into the job that I wanted. Yeah. And then luckily I had, an, I'd, I had a, I got a call one day and I was actually really sick. I think I'd just come out of like Lloyd's Pharmacy with like loads of like night nurse and day nurse. And they're like, can you come in for an interview at Sony? Um, and I was like, oh, like, the time is not the best. Like, I'm not feeling great. And like, and I was in a tracksuit. And at the time, like, it's very different now. Like, I wear tracksuits to work. Yeah. <laughs> but I felt like I always needed to, like, you know, present myself the, uh, the best. And then they were like, don't worry about it. Just come in. Had an interview with, um, with an amazing uh, woman and mentor called Stacey Tang. Um, and it just, it was the first interview that felt like a conversation um, and we really just got on and then they offered me the job the next day so. as a temp to cover an intern that had left. And then after, and then from that, after the three months, they were like, we really want to keep you, but this role was actually an intern's role. So you would have had to apply for the internship scheme, but I already had, cause I'd applied for everything. Yeah. Um, and so then I went and done the internship interviews while I was already doing the job, um, which was odd. 
but it was it's good like that it was like bureaucracy they, they gave like things, yeah right? they just gave like, it was like equal opportunities mm-hmm. and people had already applied so then got my got my job back did the internship and then after the internship there still wasn't any headcount headcounts were always a, a huge thing so they put me back on a temporary contract for three months because like we really want to try and find a way and then like I always think it's like divine intervention when I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to get this job. And then one of the marketing coordinators left out of the blue and then they gave me that job. How big was the step up from that internship to the marketing coordinator role? Because I think like a few of the people I speak to, they speak about having to take a bit of a risk and just like not fake it till you make it, but really fill bigger boots than they previously had. Did you feel like you yeah. out of your depth or, or was the experience you already had enough? I, th- I think for that for that jump, I felt like I was already there because I, I felt like I was quite, because I'd done quite a lot of you know bits and bobs at other places, I felt like I was quite high functioning intern. Mm-hmm. So when I stepped into the, the assistant role, I was I already knew how to do it. And something that Stacey already said was like, told me a long time ago, she was like, you should always be able to do like 70% of the job you're getting promoted to rather than have to like learn it on the job. Yeah. Um, I think as I've got, and then it's weird, like looking at me when I was an assistant, looking at my bosses and my bosses' bosses, and I was thinking, oh my God, I could never do that job. It's, it's just so much like, how do you have all that information? How do you come up with all those ideas? And like with each stage that I've, you know, moved up, that's kind of dissipated a bit but there always is like a bit of imposter syndrome where you're like you know am I good enough can I do this but I think ultimately if people trust you enough to put you into those positions um you can I think it's just it's a self-doubt thing that that holds you back do you still find that now 100% every day (laughs) scary yeah and especially yeah especially like moving moving roles from somewhere that I know I've been at Columbia for so long um, like I know like within the building all the systems and the processes and the people and a lot of the people that I came in with at assistant level are now heads of and directors of their own department so you know it was it not, it's not easy but a lot of the conversations and stuff um, can, it could ha- happen a lot smoothly I moved to Warner I don't know who the gatekeepers are for everything yeah. I've got to build new relationships and build foundations with these people and um, that's that's a whole challenge and, and, and it's quite daunting but Again, I know I can do it. It's just that you always have that little voice in the back that's like, you know, are you good enough? Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's, that's kind of reassuring to hear that you even, as senior as you are, you still find that, that kind of imposter syndrome thing. I think it's probably a creative-minded yeah, yeah, I, I think. Mate, d- does that happen in banking? Like, I'm, I'm a mate some finance. I don't know. Saying, I'm not sure. And I don't know if it even happens for everyone. I think the way, like, I don't think I have all the answers. And I love peer review. And like, for me, it doesn't matter what, how senior or junior you are. I like check creative with interns. I check creative with managed. Like it doesn't really matter to me because at the end of the day, we're trying to, we're trying to sell an artist or a product to a consumer and they're just people and we're people. So, you know, if, you know, I'd love to get like five people's different opinion on like mm. some art, album artwork, because, you know, ultimately I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, like, this is amazing. And everyone else is like, this is not that. It's, it's market, <laughs> it's market research on the kind of Yeah, exactly. And, and that's how, that's, that's how I've always liked to work, like very collaboratively. So I think, yeah, I, like I, I look at some people and I think, oh, do you doubt yourself? Do you have the same worries as me? I don't know if it's something that's isolated to me, but for me, definitely. I, yeah, I always have that little niggle like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. are you doing the right thing? What, let's talk about some more, more kind of music. What were the, some of the earliest campaigns you were working on? What, what artists were you across? So when I, when I first came in, I was assisting the senior marketing manager at the time. Is this um, to Columbia? This is at Columbia, yeah. So we, he was doing George Ezra, first album. Um, we did Mark Ronson. Um, and like, it was incredible to learn on like such products that became so successful, like Mark Ronson, Uptown Funk. I don't know, don't quote me on the stat, but at the time it was like the fifth best selling single of all time. But this is a long time ago, the, the track with Bruno Mars. And just seeing like the scale and, you know, budgets that you have to deal with. And that was part of me being like, wow, this is so big. Like, could I ever do this? Mm. Um, and then similarly, like just all of the planning and thought that goes into like an album campaign um, for someone like George. Um, yeah, starting on that and then started assisting on stuff like snake hips and then as I like grew within the role um that was like completely handed over to me um and then as I started doing my own stuff um like more recently 
I did yeah, coffee from the big, from the very beginning. That was like a six year uh, process to get to the album. Um, uh, Wizkid, Davido, um, and like all presenting their own individual. Because a lot of these artists, like they're not they're not based in the UK. So it's even going to them. So like every every video that we did with coffee, I went to Jamaica. We spoke um, when we first met on that sh- shoot. We spoke about this, and you were like, "I think you're you're basically you weren't saying it was hard, but you were saying that it's the logistics that made it." Oh, it's really, it yeah, it's, it's, like, it's super challenging. Like doing all the prep in the UK, and then you get there, and then it all kind of goes out of the window. Yeah, and you're like, okay, well, let's just like make the best out of of, of this situation, but. It's been like it's 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 made me grow so much because a lot of the time that was like um, it was just me, um, and then like a video production even on, team. Even on coffee, like how big that? No, just just me in Jamaica. Oh yeah. So, so yeah. So then I'm like, so it's just trying to make sure that you get because it's it's really expensive as well to like go over and get and to shoot videos and you just want to make sure that you've got everything that you you need. And with her being based there, like it's so much stuff that I was like okay I need to get the liners for DSPs and I need to get the press shots done I need to get BTS and it's like making sure I get all of this stuff like managing like managing like making sure she doesn't burn out because she also has to do like a music video which is shot over two days um yeah similarly like you know going from like Whiskey has always been huge in the continent but then having to translate that and he's always had a huge fan base here but also there's been an education process within the label that like we're dealing with an enormous artist that hasn't necessarily sold loads here and now does. Yeah. But that was like a five year process to like selling out 302 arenas is like such a moment coming from from when you've been there since the first the first album. Pre pre one dance. Mad. How how do you approach a UK artist as opposed to those based abroad like Whiskey and Coffee? Like how- Yeah, so I think also there's based abroad and then there's signed abroad so the interesting thing like Wizkid is signed to America Coffee is signed to the UK um, but Wizkid spends a lot more a lot more time in the UK so there's always been a, a really like good and direct relationship with with management and artists um, and Coffee the, the time difference and the and the distance um, just meant that like it, it, you know sometimes it would take longer to get stuff across the line or, or approved but I think in the end we found a way of like really making it work um, and we did so many amazing things on the on the coffee album um, and but then Davido in a different way he's obviously also based in in Nigeria but he's signed to the UK so like we a lot of the videos were either shot in Atlanta or LA or some were shot in London just depending on you know you've got to be flexible as to where to where the to where the person is and what's the most cost effective option, um, but I think that my aim has always been to, and a lot and a lot of the art, international artists that are signed to the American label, their priority they they see the UK as a priority. So like Khalid, for example, um, he's got an amazing manager called Courtney, and his his he always had a focus on the UK. So they would always prioritize our ideas and what we wanted to do, and like he spent a lot of time here. So. Um, I've always tried to build that relationship with the US artists, but the diff- the main difference being is you don't you don't create the bulk of the content and 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 assets that America will do that, and then you kind of um, shape them for the UK market. Whereas if they're a UK artist, you make everything, and then the international team take that to the world and repurpose it and repurpose it. How for each do territory. you? How does the kind of ideation work with like coming up with creative ideas when? when you haven't got like a direct uh, a direct understanding of the audience like or, or do you just have to go off of the stats do you see what I'm trying to say like in the UK obviously the people you see at concert or yeah. concerts and on the street are the same people that more time you're you're well, th- yeah. itching to there's a lot there's a lot of market research and like there will be tests like that we'll do a small gig in the beginning and it'll be like let's go and see who's actually there like who bought the tickets cool. and then sometimes it's surprising and sometimes it's not um, and I think something we found with initially with coffee we thought our audience is going to skew quite old because it's reggae um, and it's and it's not like Gen Z music but then what we found <laughs> but only because I, I sent it to him. yeah then what I found was that our audience spanned all ages because I've never worked with an artist where I've had all of my friends be a fan and then go to a concert and it's you know from 16 to, to 60 that's in the audience. I think she just had music that transcends like generations, um, which I think is something that reggae kind of does anyway. It's like as prevalent now as it was 
then her tiny desk is one of my favorite pieces of like music video of all time i love it yeah and it was great it was great to work on because all of the things that i like always wanted to do on some other artist campaigns everybody wanted to to work with her so like doing an id cover so early doing a tiny desk so early doing the colors so early i was like this is amazing like we're, we're, we're like this is like you know one of one of the one of the best case scenarios you could have for for a, for a brand new artist especially someone who you know wins a grammy off an ep right. essentially it was in the albums category but yeah it was five tracks five brilliant tracks you've kind of touched on the travel aspect having to go out there for videos and stuff like that but like more generally throughout your career how has travel like been part of it do you struggle to balance it or do you love it like how do you feel about that i think the marketing you don't generally do as much travel as the promotions or the a and r team um you're more like in the weeds like getting the plans done i think where there's a specific relationship or um you know having having to shoot the videos in jamaica that was more of like a case by case but there isn't there hasn't been loads of travel and i've done a few videos in different in different places and um like tv opportunities but um i think that the thing to manage is is working on all the different time zones and also being able to like make sure that you have time for yourself especially now having a daughter yeah i can't and I, and, I, and, I, and, I need, and I have to set that boundary of like, yeah, you know, LA are up for, you know, a good, a good seven hours after we, we finish um, in the UK. And yeah, you can, you can be responsive and reply to everything or, you know, stuff can wait. Some stuff is super sensitive, but stuff, some stuff can just wait till the next day. But I think when, obviously when you come in quite junior, you're just keen to make sure that people know that you're, you're reliable and you're, yeah. you're accountable. So you do end up replying to everything at all hours. I remember I've stayed up like, all night to deliver a video because they were editing and grading in LA. That's not something that <laughs> we'll never say never, but it's not something I'd wish to do now. As you've moved throughout your career, how have you kind of re-erected those boundaries? Do you see, do you see what I mean? Because obviously yeah. I, I completely get what you mean. Like earlier on, you really don't want to, you want to show the show willing basically. Yeah. But then every time you, take a next step do you have to reassess your boundaries how, how does it kind of work definitely and the role also changes i think like as you go up you do less campaign level stuff and it's more about the people and making them feel they feel supported and adding value where you can but also allowing them the autonomy to feel like you know it is, it is their campaign so i think there's you, there's less of the you know the late night messages or emails or calls um and and then but then there's new challenges that come with with being with being more senior. But I think yeah, in the more junior roles, I think that's where you're you're relied on more of the twenty, 20 not twenty four hours, but the, the hours are a lot longer um, because you're you're trying to actively deliver stuff that could be being delivered from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. You've already said you had experience a little bit anyway in A and R marketing and management before you got your first like proper role, yeah. Did you ever feel swayed to do any of the others or, or not? Like I, I started and I wanted to be an A and R, and then I think the more knowledge I got about A and R, it's really weird. I thought it feels like a more like not volatile, but um, I my skill. I felt like my skill set definitely as I did different um, internships and job roles, lied in marketing. And after doing you know my degree in marketing, which like not many people end up doing a degree that they end up doing a job yeah, in. very rare. Very, very rare. Um, yeah, I, I, sway, I swayed towards marketing um, to, to over A&R. I'm just trying to understand like the, the relationship between A&R department marketing and promo, etc. Like how is your relationship now with A&R? Do you, at your senior level, do you have that much? Yeah, no, definitely. I think like you, you need to keep you need to keep the relationship with with all of the departments, like no matter what level in the in the company you are, because ultimately, like marketing are like the the hub. They're like the nucleus of the campaign, and you divide you you know you have this uh, this like grand idea in your head of how you want everything to go, and and all of the departments, you know, they, they feed into this and and they help, and they're experts in their individual fields. So everything starts with A and R. And, you know, ideally, you know, the A&R, they sign the artist and they explain the vision to you and then you can sit down with the artist yourself and 
find out what their vision is and what they want to do and ideally work backwards from whatever that is like you know they've got a concept for the album in their head or you know a creative vision and then you work backwards to just start creating that world from the beginning in an ideal scenario it doesn't always work as smoothly as that and then like with you know with the promotions team it's 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 about you know you you formulating a timeline with them about you know how long do they need on some singles take a lot longer to build some some they think will be quite quick it depends on the artist so some are going to take a lot of a lot of work to get people around to the artist proposition and to to support and some will be out of the block straight away um and it's managing like you know how quickly do we need to be up at radio like what playlist do we need is it going to be streaming led is it going to be radio led is it going to be tiktok led there are so many variables now because also when i started we were talking about itunes downloads yeah. and physical and putting stuff in supermarkets and now it's streaming but there's you know six seven eight different streaming platforms that all offer different playlists different promotions different things you can do with them um, and then you know and, and then on top of that you also have TikTok um, which is a whole beast in itself and that um, you know we're constantly trying to understand and it's constantly evolving let's talk about TikTok shall we <laughs> <laughs> is it the bane of your life or, or are you kind of excited about it or what I think it, you can be honest <laughs> I think it's really difficult to navigate a world that um, revolves around a platform that is completely random in what, like, it, you know, a track can just spike out of nowhere. And I don't believe there's any, like, correct... For, I feel like everybody's trying to figure out how to master TikTok, but no one really knows and everybody's trying different things. Um, so... I think it's a great tool. I think it's also turned into an A&R tool. Um, people like A&Rs are finding tracks of TikTok, but artists are also using TikTok to A&R their own records. Mm -hmm. So they're putting out clips on TikTok and if they get a good reception or it starts to blow up and go viral, they're like, well, this is my next release. And so, kind of open verse challenges and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Like quite, quite an interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, we've moved, we've moved into a world where the consumers are really deciding what... Um, what sells what what they want especially with platforms like tiktok for for, for the younger generation um it doesn't like something blowing up on tiktok doesn't always translate into you know real world streams and sales but a lot of the time it does um so i wouldn't say it's the bane of my life i would say it's, it's very it's very difficult and something that like i feel like everybody in the music industry is trying to to navigate but you know it's not the be all and end all and it's not it's not for every artist I think like one thing that um, I understand is that you don't have to um, be on TikTok to be successful, which I think we've kind of moved into a world where that's kind of the belief. It's like TikTok FOMO for, <laughs> for I guess, marketing guys, right? Yeah. Um, how are you planning to make use of, of the platform in your, in your new role? Is there already a kind of strategy there or is it again just experimenting and seeing what happens I think yeah experimenting I think some artists are really great on the platform um, I think Pink Panthers is a really good example of somebody who uses it as a, a real you know good A&R tool um, to like, decide like what the release strategy should be um, you know we do we do we do a lot of testing with like different content um, like different messaging on the content uh, different influencer strategies um, and I don't think there's, there's no one rule for what's going to work. It's it's finding out what works for that single or that artist. Um, but yeah, as I said before, it's kind of an unknown. Um, just you're just trying to figure it out day by day. You just mentioned the kind of influencer marketing thing, and obviously brands are becoming increasingly reliant on influencers to as, as part of their campaigns. And I think that's probably a trend that's going to continue, or at least. It seems that way. Yep. Do you think the same is going to happen with with music? Like, well, obviously, artists are themselves influencers, but do you think there's going to be kind of endorsement by various? Is, is that yeah? Key we yeah, strategy? definitely. We definitely do a lot of um, you know, and we and we try to get them to create con like really good content. Um, but what am I trying to say here? Yeah, so you know, we de influencers are a big part of most campaigns, getting them to post content using the song in the, in a way that feels as natural as possible and not forced. 
Um, but it's very difficult to quantify if, you know, the spend, because influencers are very expensive. Um, it's very difficult to quantify whether that has, you know, that has been the catalyst to why something is blown up or if you were just adding adding to the to the fire. I think like there's definitely a space to do a, a lot of like um, post campaign analysis and digging into like whether the spend on influencers was like an effective use of money or whether it Rather is than a box tick. Whether yeah, exactly exactly that. Whether it's just a tick box, yeah, we've done the influencer campaign, we've done the paid social ads. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think more of that because I think we need to be and I think we need to be looking at the learnings and using money the most effective way. On your kind of come up, did you find learning about the the large scale budgets really challenging or does it kind of come naturally to you like on the on the more technical side of things? I think I think it does come naturally. I've naturally always been very interested in how much things cost. I always do think it's mind blowing that like when you get to superstar artist level like how much everything costs but you just pay a tax associated by art by artists because there's there's loads of creatives and and designers and stylists that were like they were cut deals if it's for someone that's super cool and brand new but as soon as you're talking about an established superstar they're like this is the money that i require to do that so you just yeah you just yeah you just do pay that that premium um and but uh like i've always been really interested in like how much things cost on videos and i've always gone through budgets myself to like just to see like how much should be an art department and how much does this cost so now like I've got to a point where I can read a video idea or I can read a shoot concept and in my mind I know, I, I know the ballpark figure of what it's going to cost mm-hmm. um, so I don't the budgets never become daunting I actually think they become more like the more money you have the more exciting and like bigger and better things that you can do um, and I think yeah along the way you do just incrementally learn um, and hopefully, obviously, you work on something successful, and then your budgets are flexible. Like if you have a hit, then the next song you put out, you'll have a bigger budget, yeah. and you can do bigger things. What's the most expensive video, or yeah, what's the most expensive video you've worked on? You don't have to say figures, but but do you know? <laughs> and was it worth it? You know, I I I, 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 I genuinely do love the video. There was a there was another video that was um that was shot in Jamaica, and the featured artist um was. He decided that he wasn't going to be able to make the shoot, although they were both in the same country. So I was trying everything within my power to get him to to come to the other side of Jamaica, which is uh, it was like a three four hour drive. Um, and they didn't want to do the drive, and then I priced up a helicopter, but the travel party <laughs> the travel party was too big. So from the helicopter, it's been an amazing amazing fixer in Jamaica called Carleen. And um and then we got to private jet and the flight for a four hour drive. It's a it's a it's a fifteen minute flight. Um and I was like, you know, can you cut the travel party down to eight and then you could fit on the jet? And they were like, No, it's still sixteen, so that's gonna be two jets. Then we had the two jets. Then they wanted a, a tour bus and they wanted a full festival rider. Um, so these were all costs that were sort of mounting up in the in the background in addition to the, what was already an expensive shoot um, and then yeah in the end when I got the bill I didn't realise that the jet the private jet cost that I'd been quoted was one way so when I got back to England there were a few <laughs> questions to be a few a few questions to be answered a few raised eyebrows a lot of a lot of missed calls because I was obviously working in a different time zone and like my prerogative was like I we don't get a second chance to shoot this video if we ha- if we have to do a pickup shoot in America. It's going to cost more than it would cost for me to book this jet and this tour bus and this festival rider. Um, so I just made an executive decision rather than having a gap in the video to cr- to get to get him in the video for for quite a, a large sum of money. Um, which yeah, it was a little little bit of trouble. But in the end, the video came out great. He's in the video. How do you keep your head in these situations? That, that's the most that's the most stressed I think I've ever like been on on any like creative or like um, artist campaign but me and the video commissioner um, the brilliant Lisa Fu uh, we just tag teamed it it was like I would I was making sure that the artist was okay she was making production was okay and then we'd come back and be like what the hell's going on because yeah. everything was going wrong and then we'd like go back and do our respective stuff and then like afterwards like it's just nice to have someone to like decompress with that's like in it in it okay. with you like, I think the like, teams are also super super important and on that specific artist project 
you know the the hair and makeup person the the stylist they're all people that I've known for a long time um and then when and from the beginning they've been working on the campaign so it was like a family affair of everybody just like we have a job to do yeah um and like we didn't rap until like three in the morning um but we got it in the end but yes it was it, it was the overages that ended up making it one of the most expensive videos that I'd done happens yeah and then on the more day-to-day side of things how do you stay balanced because you're obviously pretty senior now I imagine the pressures are, are quite high and the stability isn't always there do you have any like routines or habits that you kind of make sure that you're sticking to yeah well try to go to the gym every morning that I'm going to the office which I think definitely helps you feel like I feel like you're more set up for the day mm-hmm. um, what time do you go to the gym I get there for seven I think yeah around seven yeah and then yeah leave the house at about uh, 10 6 6 30 that's what I aim for um and then I think I've just yeah touching on before just with um boundaries like before I always used to like take my work phone on holidays and like I would reply to emails and I think if people know that you're always going to do that they'll always expect it and I think you have to but like I said with, with seniority and time you can put up you know more boundaries and like sometimes you'll go away and that your holiday is coincided with something that's super important it's like you might have to dip in and dip out of emails but as a general rule I, I just try to just disconnect because you have to have some time for yourself um same with like you know evenings at work some days you'll have to work late but you do need to also allow yourself to just switch off otherwise you don't have the the mental space when you come back in in the morning because you've been working till so late to like do good work or to support a team mm. and then also being conscious of like what everybody else in the team is working on and, and going through because also like be, being at every level in the company I understand all the stresses and um, like late hours that come with each level in the marketing team so just having that sympathy and like chipping in like you know and trying to help where I can like if there's any like conversations that have like come to a dead end for various reasons like seeing if those are things that I can I can help myself um, but yeah there's not yeah not so much of a routine I think just yeah trying to trying to set aside time for yourself yeah um do you have any i see you've got a dj set up over there because you're at your home in north um do you have any hobbies do you still do you still find time to just listen to tunes that you really love or like you know talk me through your kind of yeah i I factor not so the dj DJ said was like was a lockdown thing i was like because i i have such an admiration for djs and producers in general so like when I was touching on my music taste and I was saying that um, like I, I, I've always had like a, I've always been a big fan of like instrumentals um, and it's been always, like even since I was young like, like I just a 140 loved, type guy or, or just generally just gen, like generally like I love I love classical music like I love um, Oliver Arnold and Nils Fram like I even like like this isn't an instrumental but like I'm a big fan of Enya which is a complete curveball but um, I just think yeah for me, production is so important to creating a song, and I love what DJs do. I love how they can bring people together, mm. and like it's not even necessarily their music, but um, it's like it's like piecing that all together just to create like a great night where people can come together. So I did try to DJ. I can. I'm very very novice, but I can't say I've touched it in a, in a while. Briefly touched on it before we started recording, but like, how is how's the new job going? You've only been there a few weeks. Yeah, it's going. Really it's excited. Going, yeah, it's going really good. I'm really excited. They've got a really exciting roster of like um, like artists to break next year, and also like huge artists like Dua Lipa who are already um, uh, enormous already. Um, and yeah, for me, it's like a chat. Being somewhere for so long, I'm so used to it. I know you know all, have all the relationships with my artists and managers are like completely galvanized and they completely trust me and it's like just do it it's, it's starting that process again after after so long but um you know so far so far so good obviously when we spoke about tiktok we didn't mention the fact that catalog is like blowing up yeah um, and that's something that we have no control over either yeah yeah so i was i was going to ask you basically answered it there but like is there any way that you're now approaching marketing because you know that there's the potential for it to have way more longevity because of sync and because of TikTok or is that kind of just too far out of your control? 
It's, it's, it's different how um, how Warner Music works to Sony because Catalog sits in a different department. Um, so we, it's not something we've ever had to really um, dig into while I've been working at Columbia, but it's definitely probably something that I'm going to be thinking about at Warner's. But it had, there hasn't been a test case for me to really like delve into as to like you know how we'd react to a catalog track um, yeah. blowing up because it's always been it's always sat um, centrally in our in our catalog team at, at Sony. And even when you're doing the frontline stuff, is there like how do you approach longevity more generally when you're thinking about videos? Are you are you is it a tool to help break that particular track or are you hoping that that will become part of their kind of legacy? Do you see what I'm saying or does it depend? Yeah, I think vi- videos are quite tricky because, you know, you, you have an idea and, and, and the artist has a vision and then you hand that over to a director and they write it down. And I think it's, it's sometimes it's really hard to translate what's written down um, when it comes to what you actually shoot in real life and a lot of the time they don't completely marry up. But in the ideal scenario for me it's always about legacy it's always about trying to create something really impactful that people are going to revisit or people use as a reference for other videos I think when yeah. you when you create a video that you then get fed back to you by other directors to yeah. say oh and we want to do it like this and I'm like oh yeah that's that's one of ours mm-hmm. that's that's the end because that's when you know that you've like impacted culture what questions do you ask yourself before making career decisions so you obviously just made quite a big one Bar the fi- by the bar the financial side of things, what questions do you have to ask yourself? Uh, I ask myself whether I am the right person, spec and fit for that company, and vice versa. Am, am I what they need or is missing? Because I think like you can you can go somewhere for money and title, and you're not what they need, and they're and vice versa. Um, they're not what you need. Um, and yeah, for various different for various different reasons, I think culturally that the the working environment needs to be right, yeah. um, and my personality needs to be a good fit for for like eat, like to, to fill a gap that's not currently there. I mean, for me, that's the that's the most important the most important motivation because like the, for me, the people make the business. Like happy people do good work, yeah. um, and you know I. I might not be the right boss for the team that you have. I might not bring the right skill set or um, way of working. So, like trying to get an understanding of that before you move to a company is quite difficult. Yeah, I was going to say how it's quite difficult. But I think for me, if I look at who's leading the company and I look at their personality, I think that that always filters down. So, if you've you know you've got somebody at the top that you know believes in people and 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 a, and a healthy and a good working culture that will all filter down so you know if i put trust in the senior management team then i know the kind of people that they want to hire as well and also the fact that they'd be talking to me kind of makes me think okay they want they want people like me yeah. um so yeah that that's my most important factor which isn't always easy to know before you start somewhere but yeah unless you could like you know sneak in and, and have, a, have a snoop it, around before you it is also like it's a very small industry so you can ask a lot of people like do you know the team here yeah. or do you know the team now do you know this person and a lot of people do you know through one two three degrees of separation you can always kind of find somebody that knows the people that you're going to be working with what skills do you think young people should be nurturing to adapt to the future of the industry are there any kind of big changes that you're expecting or whatever but but just generally Ultimately, I think the skills are the same. I think the entry has changed slightly. I think you still need to be super proactive. Um, you need to be putting yourself putting yourself out there. And I know it's not easy. Like people are like, oh yeah, just network. And it's like, well, how do you even get invited to the events to network in the first place? And that's that. That's a whole like when like what I was saying before is that I went to yo-yos, and that that was like a that's like a, an event that you could like publicly go to as well as there was a guest list. But I yeah, I just went as like a punter and then ended up bumping into it because I knew it was in a, a, a space where a lot of music industry people went to for a night out. So being there enabled me to um, to, to then bump into the person that ultimately helped me get my first proper job. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I know it's not, it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, just go out and network. But I think yeah try 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 and put yourself in spaces where you think people are going to be also like if you're going to gigs 
there's always going to be people there. And I think that's something I didn't realise is that... To see who's on their own at the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's always going to be label people there. There's always going to be publicists. There's going to be radio people. There's going to be like radio pluggers as well as people from radio. Like depends what you want to get into, but those people will be in that space. It's not always easy to identify who they are. Um, and if you do see them, a lot of the time, like most people would be reset. Like if somebody was to come up to me and be like, oh, I know that you work here and I'm really looking to like, there's no way I'm going to be like, don't talk to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, 90% of people will be receptive to that, um, to someone coming up to them. So yeah, like doing the research, like who are the, who are the people and the gatekeepers of where you ultimately want to be? Um, and also just like, just like double checking, like, is this really like, do, do you know what, because a lot, a lot of people come in and with the internship schemes that we've done, like, you know, most of the interns want to do marketing. Um, and then when you really drill into like, why do you want to do marketing? Sometimes they actually want to do promo or sometimes they actually want to do something completely different. And you're like, because what actual like label marketing is, isn't like standardly what you think it is. It's not just doing music videos and it's not just like creating art where there's so much strategy and data and yeah. analysis that, that goes into that job as well, which some people aren't really interested in or some people are more interested in that and maybe they're more suited to work in digital or audience development. I think that because of the different, the complex structures of labels, like I'm still trying to learn how things fit together and it isn't that simple um, and also it differs between the different labels, right? So that's yeah. the sorts of conversations I'm trying to have now just to understand it. But are there any resources that you could recommend to people that are trying to get into the into the industry now? Are there any podcasts you listen to or books that you've read or? Probably quite bad in that I didn't. Uh, I didn't, well, no, I think, I think I did. One of the modules that I did at university was on like music industry management, but I wouldn't say that necessarily helped me. Um, I always find it really helpful like when somebody new starts that I like do like a diagram of like the, the workings of a label. I, I think like, as you said, it really differs. Like you can kind of find that stuff online, but it does differ from label to label what each department look after. Like even moving from Sony to Warner, it's the same, it's the same departments, but they're slightly different in what, what the scope of their roles are yeah. um, and like what marketing are responsible for versus digital versus promo versus streaming. So, um, you know, again, it's not easy, but finding somebody that can explain that to you, I think is probably the most helpful way. Um, but there are, yeah, I know there are lots of, you know, music industry books and, and podcasts out there, but it's, it, it's not been, it's not been the You're way that I've, gone, you it's, it's not been the way that I've learned yeah. the, the business, but then I've been, I've been lucky to learn it inside the building. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, I'm going to do a few quick fire questions and then I'll let you get on your way. Um, what do you picture for your retirement? Oh, um, <clears throat> if it was a word, it would be legacy. I really want to make an impact. I want to, not necessarily me as a, like, I'm desiring me to be you know, some sort of celebrity or, but I'd like to have made an impact on music in some way. Um, but I'd like to just like retire and own like a really cool bar that has like amazing food and great music. Um, and probably not in London because it's always cold. Yeah, true. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, for me, retirement, I want there to be, there want to be some sort of legacy that I've left and, you know, impact change that could be with art on an artist level, or even if it's people that I've like mentored along the way, or like that, that to, to do some, something positive for, the industry that's remembered. How is Oak coming into that? How, how what are your kind of vision, what's your vision for that? We haven't mentioned it yeah. at all, I'm sorry that. I, no, that's, uh, that's right. So, so Oak is a artist services management events um, and hopefully label soon that um, me and two of my good friends, which we all met at Sony and we've all gone on to, to work in different places. Um, one of us um, heads up culture at Red Bull, one is a senior brand partnerships manager um uh, a major and um we came together we're all very like-minded and you know similarly to what i was saying about legacy we wanted to create something where we would work with with artists that we you know um truly believe in their vision and what and what they stand for um and you know that the meaning that the reason why we called it oak is that longevity that is you know the the the, the oldest tree in the forest it's very hardy and hard wearing and, and resilient um, and yeah, we, we wanted to build something. We wanted to, you know, 
put together events that are the real moments for for people um and like culture being at the heart of of everything that we do um and like taking a, a 360 approach to the artists that we work with like we really want to help like for us money's never been the motivation it's really about helping people so like even as a re- like when people like people have just asked us you know for help on their campaigns and they're managing other artists and it doesn't even need to be a an oak thing but like just trying to be like we ultimately want to build it in something that we're a resource for other people um and that our artists feel supported in all aspects i think you know sometimes you can give an artist loads of money and they come from they come from a space where they, they've never had that much money and they don't know how to manage it and, yeah. and it can lead to all kinds of all kinds of things happening in their life um and, and ultimately a lot of artists spend and, and and lose all of that money and that can lead to you know mental health issues we would we're like we would always be fully involved in all of that because yeah. we want to make sure that they're you know they are successful but they're also uh, savvy with like their money and like we can help introduce them to a, like a really good lawyer or a really good accountant or sometimes even a really good therapist or even being that therapist ourselves sometimes um so yeah it, the, the, that's the the dream is for yeah the, the, the legacy will tie into oak um because that's that's what we're aiming to create are there any artists that we should check out that that you are working with now or that you kind of have your eye on yeah, so there's an artist called Brownie Pondis. He's an amazing um, Afrobeats singer. Um, he's living in Lagos. We'll have music next year. Cool. Um, there's a producer called From London. Um, he's also from London. Um, <laughs> love, love the name. Um, he's, he's such an, an eclectic producer, um, but he's soulful and Afro and funky house is, is um, going to be his, his main output. And we, yeah, again, that's going to be um, coming next year. And we want to build that into like an immersive live show as well. Um, and then there's another rapper called Prof who's going to be putting out a mixtape next year. He's got some music out already. He just played at Wireless last year. Um, and he's definitely one to watch. Where do you learn about the world? Do you read a particular newspaper? Do you use Twitter still? Like, what's your... <laughs> it's funny. I, I do use Twitter quite quite a lot. I don't know if it's that where I learn about the world, but... It is such an instant source of news and also just a very hilarious place. Like people's awesome. people's opinions and the social commentary on things that happen them, um, I love. Um, but yeah, I do. I watch a lot of documentaries and I do a lot of deep diving on like, if I'm like, oh, I wonder like, it's so weird. Like I'll be like, I wonder how deep the ocean is. And then I'll just Google it on Wikipedia and then I'll go into like Wikipedia hole where I'm clicking through yeah. and then through another link, yeah, another, yeah. link another link, another link, another link. If I was to go on like who wants to be a millionaire, I'd probably be a good phone a friend because I've got loads of random knowledge. But the things that you need to know, I probably don't know. What are your favourite five songs at the moment? So if I look at my Spotify Wrapped, there's a lot of there's a lot of Bonobo in there. Mm-hmm. New album, the Salt album. There's a producer called Jasper Tigner that I'm really, or is it Jasper Tigner? Someone at work was like it's Tigner. I thought it was Tigner. I'm a big Ross from Friends fan. Obviously, the Kendrick album. Um, Did you see him this year? I saw him at Glastonbury, and honestly, I, I've, the, the, I, since Watch the Throne, I've not been in awe of a performance so much. And I think in terms of the actual performance, Kendrick wins. But in terms of the best concert I've ever been to, it's still Watch the Throne. It was, yeah, a real moment. A duo called Chiasmos. And there's a, what's the tape, what's the tape called? Is it actually just called Chiasmos? Yeah, it is. Came out in twenty fourteen though. Definitely not new. But it's like a classical it's a classical producer called Oliver Arnold and I don't know who, I can't remember the other guy's name, but he's a house producer and they came together to create this great. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, famous or not famous, who would it be? Do you know what? I'm gonna go quite deep because I want the answers. It would be the creator of the universe. <laughs> You know what? I, I don't even know if I can ask you the last question. I think that's a good place to leave. Because I, <laughs> I want to, I, 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 I genuinely want to know, like, what and why. Yeah, you know, why is, is the that, ocean so deep? You can't, you can't <laughs> ask those questions on Wikipedia. That's for sure. No, yeah, I, I like, I, yeah, I, I, lo- I love to believe that, like, you've got a purpose and there's, and there's, a, and there's an afterlife. So I think I just want to cheat and go straight to the source cool. and find out the answers. Cool. 
Joel, thank you so much for having <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you, I appreciate it. I hope that wasn't a load of waffle. No, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. I know it wasn't. Yeah. really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joel Corty. I want to say thanks again to Joel for being part of this project. This is the first of many. We'll be releasing two every month. So do keep an eye on our Instagram page, which is at underscore odd numbers. Also a special thanks to Sush Traparazzi, who provided the music for this one, which is taken off of novelist track Weds in Cali. Cali.